But before we do that, jump backwards uh, to the Proverbs. If you have an Old and New Testament, split it down the middle. After the Psalms come the Proverbs. I'm just going to read one Proverb, 12.8. Proverbs 12.8. It says, A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. And what better wisdom than that that comes from the one who made everything? The Bible is clear that we should seek the wisdom of God. He made us. He made the whole brain thing and the relationship thing and uh, the life and death thing. You know what I'm saying? He made all this. So, you know, the best thing to do is to seek God's wisdom and uh, certainly we'll do much better that way. And that's one of the reasons, well, pretty much the reason why we focus on God's word at most Calvaries that you go to. You'll never see me close my Bible or put it under the shelf or, uh, hey, today we're going to do something that has nothing to do with the Bible. You'll never see that because we want to focus on the wisdom that comes from God. But he who is of a perverse heart, right, will be despised. This person will eventually be found out for what they are and they will be despised. And I've said this often, the truth always comes out. Truth always comes out. Secrets that we have, things that we do, sometimes if we live a double-minded life, the Lord sees. And oftentimes, to our embarrassment, um, these things do come out. Listen, if the success of White Houses can't keep a secret, then we won't be able to keep a secret either. It does find its way out. Okay, so with that, let's go forward to the Proverbs. I'm sorry, to the Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians 4. Past the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. The last time the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, discussed, he did this discourse on the spirit of, and the law. We talked about relationship and religion. And today, we're going to see Paul demonstrate that our focus needs to be on the spiritual and the eternal. I mean, we focus on, listen, this microphone is tangible, this podium is tangible, uh, my hands are tangible, you know, the air that we breathe, but Paul tells us, and he gets this right from the Holy Spirit, that the unseen world is really the real world, because we know as we read the scripture, this world is not going to last, and as we saw with the earthquakes and everything that happened uh, in our society today, and they're getting more intense, you know, they're higher on the Richter scale, and they're getting more frequent, this world is, is starting to come apart, in a sense, and the Bible tells us that, right? So, starting with verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And in context, if you weren't here um, the last Sunday or the Sunday before, uh, he spoke about the false teachers, the itinerant philosophers, the Judaizers, who had come to Corinth to really poison that church. They had a tough time as it was with the influence of the world. And then you had people who came in under the guise of spirituality that were also poisoning their minds and pulling them away. Paul's going to reinforce that his ministry team didn't focus on themselves. Their focus was always on Christ and him crucified. And you'll see him say that. The word of God, Christ, and him crucified. So in verse 1, if you look at this, he says, we've received mercy doing this ministry. Paul believed that it was an honor to serve God. And that's the right perspective. Because with that foundation comes dogged determination. Right? Do we believe 
that God has honored us to be able to serve him? Do we believe that God has honored us in giving something so precious, right, as the gospel, and it never runs out, there's enough for everyone, to a lost and dying world? Do we believe, ladies and gentlemen, that God has given us a purpose in our life? Because if we understand that we have purpose, then anything that life throws us, don't focus on your circumstances, because God is going to get us through that. He didn't take us this far to drop us and leave us and flat leave us. He doesn't do that. Verse 2, he says, we haven't done what the other charlatans do. The other the charlatans, they're crafty, they're deceitful, and they're shameful. And they find new and exciting ways to siphon money out of the church of Corinth, to poison their minds, to gather a following unto themselves. He said, check your conscience. Check your conscience. And sometimes you have to say that to someone. When we were with you, did we try to take money from you? Did we try to use you? Have we always been there when you needed us? Check your conscience, Corinthians. See, he's writing a letter. So he's trying to really reach them and grasp them with that letter because there were those in their presence, unfortunately, who were trying to pull them away. And the word here, handling the word of God deceitful, it's interesting. The Greek word is dolao, which means to adulterate or water down. You see, in the first century, right, and even before that, people have been ripping each other off for thousands of years. If you had a businessman who was deceitful, what he would do is he would take the wine that he was selling and just put enough water in it throughout the day before he mixed it up, giving it to the customer. And by the end of the day, he would have a lot more product so he could sell a lot more wine so he could make a lot more money. So what a great picture. Paul's saying, listen, there's some that handle the word of God and they water it down. Do we see that today? We see that all over the place, don't we? Maybe many churches, they'll read one verse and close the Bible. And they'll just talk about politics or global warming or whatever the case may be. That's not what we're supposed to do in the house of God. We're not supposed to water the gospel down, the word of God. And that really, folks, if anything gets under my skin, that really bothers me. And there's a lot of it going on today. And they're, and they're bringing people in. People don't know the word. It just sounds good to them, so they go. Or ministries that purposely set themselves up in wealthy areas of New Jersey or New York because they know they're going to make a killing. And they do. It's a demographic study. They pull, hire people to say, where should we plant another church? Oh, that place. You know, you'll do well there financially. It's what's going on today. But one day all these charlatans, regardless of the size of their following, will stand before God in the judgment. Verse 3. But even, Paul says, if our gospel is veiled or covered or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 18, which we covered, says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, those who are lost, those who are in the process of you know, meeting God in the judgment and spending eternity in hell. Right? And you'll often find that those that you talk to and maybe you meet somebody in the store or it's a relative or whatever the case may be, a coworker, and you start talking about God and the Lord and prayer, you could see their eyebrows furrow and they get angry. We all know somebody like this and they want to fight with you. You could see the adrenaline is pumping because in their voice it starts to tremble. It, it affects them. Talking about God, talking about brain, what am I doing to you? I'm not looking to rob you or anything. 
but they get all upset because it's a spiritual battle. The ones who resist the most are the ones most blinded by the God of this age. The God of this age, he veils, he hides the truth of the gospel so a person can't see the truth. Let me change hats for a minute. In law enforcement, we're briefed by the federal government every so often about trends that affect us, local police, and there's this new trend out of Japan. It's a suicide pact. It's called detergent suicide, right? And it's big over in Japan. That's weird. Suicide is, is so final, but it's a trend, right? People are killing themselves. And it's coming here to the United States, and it's pretty dangerous because the chemicals that they mix, mix give off a, a hydrogen sulfide gas, and it's an asphyxiant. So if you come up to a car or a person's room and you open the door, it could overpower you too, even though they've just taken their life. But the point I'm trying to make here is these things are so horrendous not to even consider God, to consider taking your life and not consider what's going to happen the moment that your life is lost. Are you so sure that when you die, it's going to be flatlined and you're not going to exist in some type of, type of state of consciousness somewhere else? It's so horrendous that it has to be demonic. It's probably a lot of the reasons why the Gideons place Bibles in hotel rooms. Because people check into the hotel to check out, if you know what I mean. And a lot of them, great testimonies. They've seen, you know, they've got the gun to their head and they've seen the Bible, the Gideon Bible, and opened it up. Well, I, you know, and, and all of a sudden, the scales start to fall. The spiritual cataracts come, come down from the eyeballs and they start to see the truth spiritually and their life changes from that moment on. And that's a great thing that the Gideons do. But just as tragic is that those who maybe their families or they or their parents have been in Bible-believing churches their whole lives and they leave good, solid doctrine where after 20 or so years they've, they've gone through the whole Bible and they follow doctrines of men. There's a lot of weird things happening in our time period, ladies and gentlemen. Let me read 2 Timothy 4. Just three verses here. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We live in the age that even those that come from good Bible-believing churches are leaving for something that's tickling their ears. It sounds good. There's a, you know, and I'll talk a little bit more as we, as we go through here. But realize that a lot of cultic teachings prey on those who are already in the church. A lot of cults prey on those who don't know anything. But there are very interesting teachings that will cer certainly target those in the church and try to pull them out. Pray that the veil is removed from the hostile. Pray that the veil is removed from those that you just get frustrated talking to. And you, you, you know, don't you see it? No, they don't. And this is the reason, Paul says, that they're blinded, right? And I just remember even me when I started coming to a Calvary uh, and just listening to the sermons and hearing the word and reading it, something happened inside, man. It just started to change me. It's like the scales were, were, were dropped. And then what happened was, I started reading the, the whole Bible and said, why didn't I see this before? And why doesn't the rest of the world see this? The answer is right here. It's like a spiritual cataracts that are happening there. 
And many will stay in their folly. Scientists who learn, learn more about the complexity of the universe. Listen, I get on these kicks. I'm studying ice now. Ice. Water freezes, it becomes ice. Normal things when they freeze because the slowing down of the molecules, the activity, they start to decrease. It starts to get smaller and more compact and dense and it sinks depending on the medium that it's floating in. Now ice is interesting because it's one of the, well it is the only non-metallic substance that actually spreads out when it freezes. It becomes less dense and it floats on water. A very unusual. has to do with the hydrogen bonds and the hexagonal uh, shape of the molecules and it just, when it starts to freeze, it starts to spread out. What that does is it creates an insulative barrier for the waterways. It keeps waterways from completely freezing and it helps to keep the life under the ice, in the water, the cold water, from dying. But see, I guess it took millions and millions of years of accidents for this to happen. Of course, I'm being facetious. See, I always thought when you have an accident and you ruin something, you throw it away. But apparently in, in science, you have millions of years of multiple accidents create perfection. I don't know about that. <laughs> or even archaeologists who are making discoveries now. Um, one of our eighth graders wrote a paper on archaeology. Awesome paper. And she cited all the archaeological, archaeological uh, discoveries of these cities that were mostly founded because the archaeologists used the Bible as a guide for them, right? Or even those who have the scales over their eyes. You know, if you go to a funeral, maybe a relative, and there's a fighting amongst the relatives because somebody wants to preach the gospel of salvation. Whatever you do, you can talk about becoming an angel or anything weird, but God forbid, not at the funeral. You know, that's sacred. Don't talk about salvation. And I scratch my head and I'm thinking, if there's any appropriate place to speak about salvation in the afterlife and get people's attention, it's at a funeral, right? It's at a funeral. It's interesting about Paul, St. Paul. He was on the road to Damascus, and he was spiritually blinded. He was maddened. He rounded up the Christians, tied them up, brought them back, and gave his assent to them to be killed, even not going before the Roman authorities, just taking matters into their own hands. He was maddened, and he was spiritually blind. But when he was on the road to Damascus, Jesus confronted him and knocked him off his horse or donkey or whatever he was on. And all of a sudden, he received spiritual sight, right? Now, what's interesting is that he had physical sight on the road to Damascus. And then when he encountered the Lord, he lost his physical sight and became physically blinded. So you see the inverse relationship there. Pretty interesting. But my question is this. Where are you today? We don't mind if somebody comes in off you know, the street or saw the website and, and comes into the fellowship and, hey, this is a great day for me to be at this church because I'm going to get free food at the potluck. That's really cool. I can't wait to eat myself. Eat, comma, myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is where are you today? Where are you spiritually? You know? Why are you here? Because you are going to be exposed to light in God's word. It isn't me, it's the word. And the more it's preached, the more you're going to be exposed to those cracks in the darkness and the opaque material, and the light is going to shine through. And you will be responsible for the amount of light that you receive, okay? If you keep receiving light throughout your life and you reject God and his way of salvation, you're gonna deal with him in the judgment, and he's gonna say, you received enough light to make that decision. Verse five. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we didn't preach ourselves, unlike the false teachers. It's God's word. It's God. It's Christ that we preach. And I've said that here. You know, when people come up to me after service, say, that was a great message. Maybe in my flesh I'm tempted to take credit, but I know the truth. The truth, and I've, you've all, most of you or any of you have said that have heard me say this, it's the material. It's where we are in the scripture. I can't, you can take this, this material and just read it and blow people away. It's the material. It's not anything that a man can do. Verse 6, it says that, you know, God commanded this light to shine out of the darkness in a temporal or tangible sense during creation. And we see that in Genesis 1. Right? The light came in and pierced through the darkness. And in a spiritual sense, he also casts light into our darkened hearts. Now, I found this in the scripture that the Holy Spirit draws men unto salvation. But Jesus also drew men unto salvation. And the Father also draws men and women unto salvation. So you have three persons of the Godhead that it's not one of them that makes that decision. They're all in harmony about drawing men and women unto salvation. The Bible says that God desires that all would be saved. Uh, John three sixteen that whosoever would, would uh, you know, believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That John three seventeen that he didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but that through Jesus, the world might be saved. So that's God's desire. But he has given us free will. Now that kind of negates, and I may have to talk about this because it's becoming a fad. There's a hyper-Calvinistic fad that's making a resurgence. And for some reason, it's targeting the young people. And if you follow the hyper-Calvinist and the five-point Calvinism, what they say is that there's two lists. You're either on the A list or you're on the Z list. You're either the elect. You know, God has chosen you before the foundations of the world, and you're on this list. And if you, at some point in your life, you're not on the list, and you try to come to Christ, maybe 20 or 30 years later, or whatever age you are, that God will not allow you to receive salvation because you're not part of the elect. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God is not the one who hinders salvation. We could all be on the elect list if we choose Christ. It's a decision. It's a relationship. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that comes from the heart, right? I actually rejected God probably seven or eight times in my life, and then finally I just said after you know, coming to Calvary and just hearing the word, you know, I'm like, why am I running from the Lord? I knew this was right all along. It was my choice not to follow him. And I just decided to just give up and throw myself at his mercy and ask him into my life to be my Lord and Savior and repent of my sins. And we can all do that. You see, it's Satan, bl Satan who blinds. It's God and his word that shine the light and pierce through the darkness and save. Okay, that's the truth. Verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Treasure in earthen vessels or clay vessels. Uh, back in those days, the, they didn't have Tupperware, uh, so they would have clay or earthenware, right? It was cheap, vessels and pitchers, and it was scattered all over the Middle East, and they were a, a dime a dozen or probably a dime a thousand back then. But what made them precious depended on what they contained, Otherwise, they were common. You see, the potter's field. The potter would have a field, and he would get a field that was rich in clay, a certain type of you know, earth that you could mold and shape things with. And then he would mine that clay and make his pottery and his earthenware and sell it. And then what happened when it was all used up, 
there was some instances where pottery that was broken and no longer good for anything, broken into pieces, it would be thrown into a potter's field. Now, the Bible also says that poor people, if they couldn't afford a, a burial, the family, whatever, they would often be thrown into a potter's field. So it's just very interesting, the play on words and the analogies between the clay in the earth and our bodies. Because when we're done with our bodies and the spirit leaves, our bodies really aren't worth anything. The same 13 elements that you find in the soil are found in our bodies because we were made from the dust of the earth. You know, the, the nitrogen, the oxygen, the sulfur, the carbon, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? All that stuff is in our bodies, and when we die, it goes back into the earth. So he says we have these treasures in earthen vessels or in our bodies. By the same token, what makes us precious as people is what's inside. Not the ephemeral, the short-lived, but the eternal part of who we are, right? The fact that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, man, that really makes us precious. The fact that we're able to carry the gospel, the fact that we want even to further God's kingdom of heaven, it's the power of God that resides us that makes us precious. If we fully understood the value of God's gifts that he gave us, and the honor that he's entrusted to us with the gospel, we would be more serious about preaching the word and serving him. Verse 8. Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So, in ministry and in life... We may be hard-pressed at times. And if I asked you individually, have you ever been hard-pressed in life? And most of you, if you've lived long enough, would probably say yes. But we haven't been crushed. We've been perplexed. I just don't get it. I don't understand it. You know, it's when your faith takes a torpedo, right? But we haven't been in complete despair. We've been persecuted to lesser or greater degrees. And if you read The Voice of the Martyrs, you realize we have it very good in the United States. But not destroyed. We've been forsaken, but not struck down. No matter what happens in our lives, God is in control. And he hasn't put us here, folks, to be destroyed. What he started in us, he's going to be faithful to complete in us. He is the author and finisher of our salvation, the scripture says, right? Now, many of us have been on the precipice. We've been at the end, with the end of our ropes. We've been at the edge of the cliff looking down. They must have known that I, I did something careless yesterday because they put all these guards so I don't hurt myself, right? But many of us have been on the precipice. We've been looking over the cliff, and we're like this. It's like, you know what, Lord, I can't take any more. However, that is the time, the best time, to exercise our faith and trust in the Bible, right? God makes a lot of promises, well, when we're at that moment in our lives, that's the best time to say, you know what, Lord, I know what your word says. I'm not feeling it right now. I'm not feeling the love, but I trust you, and, and I, I just want to see what you're going to do. And he'll pull you back, and it'll just make you stronger, right? It'll just build your character more. Verse 10 through 12, he says, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life is working in you. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now as a concept here, number one, 
If you look strictly at the Apostle Paul and his ministry team, they literally faced abuse of their bodies. They were beaten. They were shipwrecked. They probably got broken bones a lot of times. And death was, was always real close. They thought probably in a few occasions that they would die. So what? So that the Corinthians and the Philippians and the Galatians, right, would have a place to worship God. You know, that was Paul's life's goal, was to spread the gospel, establish fellowships where people could worship God together of like-minded uh, people, right? Paul would have faced any peril to give the gospel and the love and the, the hope, the message of hope of salvation to a lost and dying world. So you look at missionaries, look at Sue, who just was up here, right? Nicaragua, it's a hard missions field. I've talked to people that have come back. It's hard. It's heartbreaking. We have missionaries in Afghanistan. The Taliban is making a resurgence, right? When they come up here, they ask me, don't record us and don't say our name in the message. And I don't because it could, cause, it could mean death to them over there. I just read their newsletter. They baptized um, like seven or eight people. This is a hardcore Taliban Muslim extremist country, and they're making inroads for the gospel. Awesome. In Africa, you know, things in, in, in that area, in, in Malaysia, in these, these different areas. I love missionaries, and I love to just sit there like a child and listen to their stories. It's fascinating. And in true ministry, even to a lesser extent, okay, so maybe not all of us live the lifestyle of a dangerous life. Um, we're just American Christians. We also, as we serve God, we will develop sometimes emotional scars, Right? I remember um, a famous pastor out in California who's affiliated with uh, Calvary's, and his church at one point grew to 3,000, and someone came up to him and said, you must be real proud of yourself. Look at this church of 3,000, you're so successful. He said, you're not counting the 3,000 who have come and gone and ripped my heart out. <laughs> it's interesting. I was, I'm, wow, I bet that they stopped talking at that point. <laughs> but we will suffer. If we're doing the right thing, if we're following the Lord, we will suffer. Jesus suffered, and Jesus says, you're not greater than me. The servant is not greater than his master. If it happens to me, it's going to happen to you. And Paul said, guess what? It's also going to happen from those who call themselves the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Right? So it, it's not an easy thing. So the second concept here that he speaks about is the general concept of killing the flesh so that the spiritual is enhanced. In other words, God accomplishes anything through us. Now, there's two words, even in this chapter, I looked it up in my Greek interlinear, there's soma, which is strictly of the body, where we get the word somatic from in the English, and then there's the sarx, which is the flesh, which is not really the body, but what is the flesh? Deny the flesh, you know, uh, kill the flesh so that the spirit could have life. Make the decision to listen to the spirit and not the flesh. What are we talking about? It's the part of us that says, me. I don't care about others, me. It's the selfish part. It's the greedy part. I really don't care about anybody around me. I'm just concerned about who I see in the mirror. I'm concerned about number one. It's the, the lustful desires. It's, the, it's, it's just like there's something that wells up inside of you that you know it's bad, and you've got to push it back down and keep it in its cage. That's the flesh, right? It's, the, it's perverse. It's greedy. It has hatred in it. It's the thing that uh, brings you to the pinnacle of pleasure and promises you so much only to watch you fall from the great heights and smash yourself into pieces when you hit the ground and look and say, not my problem. It felt good while it was going on. That's what the flesh is. And it's funny. Um, if you if you've ever read Freudian psychology, it was in high school and college, uh, he came up with the concept called the id that everybody has. And it's funny, hey, Siggy, the Bible predates you by a few thousand years, but it's kind of funny. If you look at his id, you see a lot of the flesh in there, right? 
the more Paul put down the fleshly desires, the more he was used of God, so that the life of Jesus, he says, may be manifest in our mortal flesh. And that's one of the illustrations of baptism, and there are a few illustrations. One of the illustrations is that when you go into the water, you're completely immersed, and you come back out, and you, you raise back up. And one of the illustrations is dying to the old self, dying to the old nature, killing the flesh, being dead and buried so that when you come up resurrected, you're a new creature in Christ. And that's the significance of that. And the reason why it's usually done public is so the world can see that that's the decision that you're looking to make. You see, life is not a game. We don't exist here to be pampered, right? And I think Haiti, and I don't say it for the shock value, but I think Haiti was a good example of how life is not a game. These people were getting married, they were buying and selling, they were planning for their retirement, and all of a sudden 7.0 whacked them, and the body count is still rising. It's going to be close to, some say, over 100,000 at this point. It's, it's terrible. And there's fault lines that run through this country too. We exist to be reconciled as a, as a rebellious child of God back to God and then to glorify him. John 12 says that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But the good news is, he says, but if it dies, it produces much grain. The thing that fell off and died, that ugly little thing that fell into the ground, when it germinates, it becomes a beautiful crop and it produces much more fruit or grain. How true. We need to die to ourselves. We need to change. That's one thing, even as we as believers, and I'm one of them, I don't like to change. I don't like change. I like when I finally get settled into a groove and there's nothing that throws me off the track. We don't like change as human beings. Too many believers don't want to kill the flesh. They're okay with living unproductive spiritual lives. They're at the mall, they're shopping, they're sleeping, and their kids are being deceived. They're not teaching their kids. We have a whole generation of young people, after my generation, that don't know the Bible. And they're pulled from here and there, to and fro. And, oh, this looks good, and that sounds good, and, well, that's gothic, and there's things I can see. I think I want to go to that church. They don't even know what they're teaching because their parents aren't teaching them and their parents aren't setting good examples. And listen, I'm not beating up on parents. I got a kid too, it's not an easy thing, juggling everything and trying to keep all the balls in the air, you know what I'm saying? But we need to really be concerned about what's going on. The flesh must die. All the stuff that we accumulate in our homes, in our garages, in our sheds, we buy more junk and then we say, I have so much stuff that I gotta get rid of the old junk to put the new junk in its place. There's no more storage space. All that stuff, when we die, it won't mean anything. I see a lot of you laughing, right? What do I do with all this new stuff? People matter. Verse 12, so that the death is working in us, but life in you, Corinthians. The concept of sacrificing our own desires so that others can be benefited. I don't, I'm not looking for a show of hands, but do we even know our neighbors? Have we even seen our neighbors? Do we even know their names? We can be so caught up in our own little bubbles that we don't even know who's next door to us. They find some serial killer, you know, and they go to the news. The news goes to the neighbor and says, what do you think of that person? He seemed like a nice neighbor. I don't know him that well. A serial killer left living next door to you, right? Are we concerned about others? <laughs> seemed like a nice boy. <laughs> Dr. John Jowett said, quote, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. It's kind of like the old um, weightlifting maxim, no pain, no gain. If you don't put something into it, you're not going to get much out of it. Verse 13, he says, but since we have the same spirit of faith, 
according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who has raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul here is quoting an Old Testament psalm, number 116. This psalmist also faced hardships. I mean, really, really hardships. Read Psalm 116 when you get a chance. And death, but it didn't let, he didn't let it shake his faith. Like the psalmist in Paul, we also put faith and trust in God and won't allow our circumstances to cause us to lose faith. It should be just the opposite. See, when we come to ourselves, which we do in life, and we come to our resources, there's another one. We can come to the end of ourselves and then hope all of our resources will cushion the blow. So when you're under your rope and you're at the end of your resources, you need God all the more. That's the worst time to just throw your hands up and reject God. You have nothing left, you see. And you know what's amazing about the Lord? He doesn't take things personally. He always allows us to come back. You see, I would be insulted. Oh, I'm always the last, you know, I'm always the last choice. Why am I always the last choice? Why do I deal with these people? But God's not like that. He always allows himself to even be the last choice. He always allows people to come back into the fold. And what do we know? We know that the God who raised up Jesus will do the same for us and we will be assembled together forever. Many have a foot in Christianity and have a foot in the world, just in case they hedge their bets. Just in case the God plan thing doesn't work, I got a foot in the world, and I'm going to jump into that side. You see, when you do that stuff, you're telling God that you don't trust him. You know what you're telling God? How many people know what a prenuptial is? Before you get married, you know, if you're you're wealthy, you say, "Um, I really love you, but just in case it doesn't work, can you sign this prenuptial so that I can have all my stuff back if we get divorced? That's insulting. That's insulting on a personal level, and it's really insulting when we do it to God. You know, Lord, I heard all about what the pastor said, and I read the word, and you know, I really want to try this, but in case it doesn't work out between you and me, can I have everything back when the relationship falls? That's insulting to God. Even if we die serving God, Paul says, or he aspires there, he says, we have hope in the resurrection and the next world because he knows that's where it's at, because he trusts in God and that was his focus, right? Many believers are living as though this is the only thing. And hey, the longer we live, the longer we get comfortable here, right? Well, I've been around for 40 years. I've been around for 60 years. I've been around for 80 years. And every day you think you're going to go to bed and wake up like you're just going to be here another 80 years. But one day it's all going to end. Or actually, one day we're going to step into the next world, not necessarily end. Some people say one thing, but their lives, their friends, even their Facebook posts say something completely different. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Verse 15, Paul goes on. To bring others to salvation through grace, which precipitates thanksgiving and giving glory to God. Now, If we truly understand grace, we understand that thanksgiving should abound. It should increase, right? What is grace? It's unmerited favor. I've done something wrong. I've sinned all my life. I repent of my sins, but I can't take those back. Uh, But I really want to follow you, Lord, and uh, I really want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And all that stuff I did, all the offensive things that we've done to God, he's done with. It's it's okay. I forget it as the east is to to the west. And on top of that, Uh, You're going to be saved. 
you're going to work with me. You're going to have glory in heaven. We're going to have a great time for eternity. But what about all that stuff I did to you? It's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. There was no merit. There was no earning. It's all done. He's not concerned about it. And even the sins we continue to commit as a Christian, those are also paid for by the, at the cross. That's grace. So when we really understand grace and we just really think about it, roll it around in our heads, right? It causes thanksgiving. And it causes thanksgiving to the glory of God because we know that he's the one who authored all that. And thankfulness is another dying concept in our society. You see, many aren't thankful. We lived in a society of entitlements, expectations, the expectation generation. Not thankful towards God, not thankful towards society. Everybody owes me. My parents owe me, the government owes me, um, you know, society owes me, everybody owes me something. And there's a, less of a tendency to be thankful in our society. You know, if someone blesses us, we should let them know how much we appreciate them. We should be thankful to them. Right? That's important. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In verse 1, he said we do not lose heart. Why? Because of God's mercy. And he says it again here when he wraps up this chapter. The outward man is perishing. We can see the effects of the aging process. Now, when we talk about um, strict context... Well, the Apostle Paul and, and Titus and Timothy, they gave up everything they had, their retirement plans, 401ks, whatever, to, to work and follow the Lord, right? And they also were beat up physically. You read a lot of accounts in the book of Acts. There was mobs, there was riots, they got beat, they got arrested, all kinds of things happened to them. So, you know, this was what was going on with these guys. Now, the outward man is perishing. We could also look at that in a, a less strict context, even day by day, what we deal with. Uh, if you're 40, you realize that you don't have the stamina you had when you were 20. And the older that you get, you realize that the outward man is definitely perishing. I could see it in the mirror. I could see it when I go to the gym. I could see it when you know, I have to work outside. <laughs> the outward man is perishing. Right? We're, we're headed towards death in our bodies. But the inward man is being renewed day by day, and that's the good news. I don't understand how those who don't know the Lord live their lives. I really don't. Because the more you live every 10, 20 years, and if you don't have the Lord, you know someday it's going to be over. You're going to die. I, I don't know how they do it. But the inward man is being renewed day by day. The spirit and the soul, the eternal part of us, it makes us, our uniqueness is being perfected to be suited to eternity with God. And there's no empirical or tangible measurements. It's something that we have to focus on, exercising that trust with him because we can't see it. All we can see is, I hit myself in the eye with a piece of wood yesterday. You know, my eyesight might be messed up for a while. All we can see is I'm starting to get arthritis in my, in my joints, you know. I can't take the cold as well as I, I, I could before. That you can see. But what we're not seeing is that the inward man, if we're following God, right, if we're going through these experiences, right, if we're being persecuted for the cause of Christ, the, there's a part of us that's being prepared for eternity. You understand? That's pretty wild, I think. And verse 17, Paul's affliction. He said it was light. He described it as light and momentary. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but here's a guy who was 
they were stoning him, they beat him, he was persecuted, shipwrecked, hunger, thirsty, bit by a viper, satanic uh, pressures on his life. His momentary afflictions uh, went on for years. So how could he say momentary and light? Is Paul lying? No. It's a focus and perspective issue. He had the, the ability to look at everything in the light of eternity or the big picture. Many believers are ineffective, exhausted, and barely walking. Why? Because they're focused on their circumstances. We will always fail. We will always fail. And I'm not saying that to, to hurt anyone's feelings. I'm actually, at the end of this, hopefully, if I'm doing it right, it should be encouraging. We will always fail when we look at our circumstances. You know? It's just, it's just like a spiral. You just spiral downwards. And you look at this, and you look at your finances, you look at your health issues, and you just keep focusing on it, focusing on it, focusing on it, and you just take the spiral downwards. We will always fail. And we'll wonder, God, why am I not effective as a believer? You know, I, I keep wanting to have that devotion with you. What's going on here, right? There's a couple that we know, an older couple, that have had so many things happen in every category that you could possibly imagine. And you know what? They're always joyous, and they're an inspiration to my wife and I. And these are the types of people that we need to have in our lives, you know, to say, wow, look at all they went through, and they're just joyous. Exactly what Paul is saying here, right? And his affliction was actually working in a spiritual way for him and for us, and it seems counterintuitive because our culture teaches avoid things that hurt you, boost your self-esteem, rely on your retirement and healthy living, and people that are, that are comforting and always tell you nice things. This is what our society tells us to do. But the Life Application Bible says this, I like this. It says, the American success syndrome is a great enemy of truly effective ministry. Why? Because it focuses on feeding the flesh. It's all about you, you know, do everything to make you happy. It focuses on feeding the flesh than fighting the flesh. It's the you deserve, you deserve mentality. The consensus of financial experts that I've um, just kind of funny reading it with all the stuff that's happening in the economy they say, you ever hear the expression, keeping up with the Joneses, right? The financial experts say, don't try to keep up with the Joneses because they're broke and in debt up to their eyeballs. <laughs> I like that. And that's part of the reason what got us into this economic mess in the first place. I deserve, I'm an American, I deserve the, the big house, I deserve the two SUVs, I deserve the green grass in the front, I deserve the pool in the backyard, I deserve it all. And, and Everybody's buying stuff and buying stuff, and all of a sudden, there's no liquidity in the, in the economy, and everything starts to tank. And of course, there's multiple factors that I don't want to get into. But this is what's going on, folks, right? Do you realize your beloved Apostle Paul, and I believe that we've done enough books that we all have fallen in love with the Apostle Paul. If you take the Apostle Paul and bring him today to 2010 and put him in the United States and put him up there and put him up against the American standard, he's a failure, by the American way of life, he was a vagabond. He had no retirement. He had no pension, right? He had no health care, you know what I'm saying? And in his perilous life, he definitely needed health care, right? <laughs> he had an education, but he never really kept up on it or got his certificates. And he, he, he always was trying to help other people, wasn't concerned for himself, and died an ignominious Roman death. He's a failure, according to the American standard. Isn't that interesting, right? It's, so, look, it's, it's cool because if we were Christians in Asia, 
they would be talking about things that affected their culture. If we were Christians in Europe, they would speak about things that affected them in their culture. And I think it's important to bring what the Bible is saying to 2010 and see, how do I apply this to my life? Verse 18, I'll read it one more time. He says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And again, a lot of imagery here, sight and light, um, something that we need to focus really our spiritual eyes on today and not our, uh, the organ that sits in our front of our brain here. Where's your focus? Is it temporal, the here and now? Because that's transient. It's fleeting. It's ephemeral. It's short-lived. And the eternal is just that, eternal and forever. It never ends. And I'll do a, a, a quick illustration with, a, with your finger, your pointer finger. And if you put up your finger between uh, you and me, right, put your finger between us, and you focus on uh, your finger, you see two of me. It's just the way the eyes work. If you focus on, uh, wait, if you focus on me, you'll see two fingers. If you focus on your finger, you'll see two of me. You can only focus on one thing at a time. Isn't that interesting? And here's the deal. If we're focused on ourself and our circumstances, we're looking down. Okay? If we're focused on ourselves and our circumstances, we will never see God. You realize that? If we're focused on God and he is our focus, there's no time to see me and my circumstances because I'm always focused on God. But the trick is, just like with the natural eyes, you can only do one or the other. If you're focused on yourself and your circumstances, you can't see him. If you're focused on him and his glory and his promises and his character, yeah, yeah, I deal with things in life, but they don't affect me as much. Pretty good stuff. Paul's obedience and his experiences worked for him an eternal weight of glory. Eternity was weighted heavier. Think about where Paul has been since A.D. 70, whatever, whenever he got killed. I'm not sure the exact date. He's been somewhere for about uh, almost 2,000 years. And his life, maybe he lived to be 60. Who knows? I don't know how old he was. But every, every day that goes by, every second that goes by, tick, tick, tick. And then when time ends and eternity starts, his life gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until he can't see it anymore. But he has an eternal weight of glory to look forward to. So I would just say this. Let's exercise uh, our focus on spiritual things and do what Paul says. Not focus on the things that we can see, but focus on the things that we can't see, because that's the real world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always, and um, we're blessed to be.